For nearly two decades, most investors' attention was focused on the stock market. Then suddenly, central banks began raising interest rates and investors began to rethink their strategies. That's given rise to growing interest in a range of alternative investment vehicles, including CEFs, internal funds, ETFs, UITs, and commodity pools. However, until now, most of these investment vehicles have only been available to institutional investors. I'm Jane Singer, and welcome back to A Seat at the Table, where we sit down with industry leaders and innovators to gain valuable insights that will help us grow our businesses. Today, we're joined by Kimberly Flynn, Managing Director and Partner at XA Investments. Having previously served as the Senior Vice President and Head of Product Development for Nuveen Investments Global Structured Products Group, Kim's leadership and dedication played a pivotal role in developing over 40 closed-end funds and raising approximately $13 billion in capital. Kim will be discussing the democratization of alternative investments that's allowing individual investors to access institutional caliber strategies, what she sees as the top emerging alternative asset classes, what investors need to consider in an investment environment where there's high inflation and high interest rates, and how alternative investments can work with ESG strategies. Making the right financial decisions starts with having the right talent on your teams. But identifying and recruiting those people can be very challenging. That's why leading companies look to AsiaNet consultants to help them find top talent and fill even difficult to fill roles. With over three decades of experience, AsiaNet consultants has an extensive network that gives their clients a competitive advantage in executive recruitment. To find out more about AsiaNet consultants, check out their website, at asianetconsultants.com. That's asianetconsultants.com. I'll also leave a link in the show notes on our podcast website at seat.fm. That's S-E-A-T.fm. FM because it's a podcast website. Now let's sit down with Kim and find out about alternative investments. Kim, I'm really happy to have you here on a seat at the table. I think that what you're talking about with regard to investment is really timely right now because a lot's happened in the market. And I am not an expert even close to on investment, but even I know that something's going on, right? Higher interest rates, inflation. There's just been a lot of stuff that are making people rethink their strategy, so to speak. So I think a lot of people listening in all the countries we reach, I think it's 132 right now, are probably having the same questions as to what do I do now, right? What should I be looking at? Absolutely. I think that investors who have traditionally invested in stocks and bonds in 2022 really started to rethink their asset allocation mix and alternative investments and are, are an area that are growing, in, at least in the United States, there are new products being developed that allow individual investors to get access to types of investments such as private equity or venture capital, private credit and uh, real estate. These are areas of investment that pension funds and endowments have long been investing in. But if you think about the burden that we have to save for retirement as individual investors, and it's really on our shoulders to be doing the most we can for diversification. And frankly, in the US, investors are heavily over allocated to US stocks. Uh, you know, we, we, we see a tendency to avoid uh, even investing internationally. You, you mentioned that your podcast has this large footprint. I would suggest that the individual investor in the United States 
uh, doesn't nearly have exposure uh, to what the world has to offer. And so, you know, not only should investors consider more than just U.S. stocks and bonds, um, alternative investments, which tend to be less correlated or even uncorrelated, just meaning that the return profile when stocks are up, maybe real estate is down or vice versa. And so you want um, investments in your portfolio moving in different directions so that um, over time you can achieve a target return that's going to meet your objective. Maybe you're saving for a, a new home purchase. Maybe you're saving for retirement. So alternatives are really where um, there have been a lot of conversation about how do individual investors get access today. Right. I, I think that's really interesting because we haven't discussed that a lot before, right? That that um, wasn't even available. Now, you talk about the democratization of alternative investments, right? So that, as you're saying, that individual investors can actually access these institutional caliber strategies. How do you do that, right? What what does that look like? Well, in the U.S., usually individual investors have, have had some exposure to alternative investing already. And maybe that's in the form of real estate purchases or, or farmland purchases. So we find that real estate and real assets are often gateway um, alternative investments to a broader array of these types of alternatives. Um, in the U.S., there is a registered fund. It's a it's not a mutual fund that everybody's familiar with, uh, but there's a type of fund called an interval fund, and it's got the same protections of the 1940 Act, meaning it's got a fund board with oversight protecting shareholders. It also has things like transparency and uh, investors get 1099s instead of a K-1, which is a tax form that's associated with private funds. And so historically speaking, alternatives were really only available in a private fund format. But in the last few years, we've seen a lot of both traditional investment managers and alternative managers move into this part of the world, uh, which is more the registered fund space. And it's important. Registered just means that the SEC uh, is reviewing these products and that's what makes it more broadly accessible uh, by individual investors. Right, right. I, I think that's very interesting. Um, now, would they be buying these through a brokerage firm or how how do they access them? Yes, absolutely. So I think the, the best place to start a conversation around alternatives is, is to talk with a financial advisor because a financial advisor, you know, given the size of your portfolio or uh, the amount of money you have saved is going to be able to give you the best advice with respect to the types of alternative investments that are appropriate given your risk tolerances. And so many of these products are sold by financial advisors. And interestingly, uh, financial advisors are really keen to educate clients on the use of alternatives, just as they've used estate planning or tax planning as a way to differentiate their wealth management practice. We see now in 2023, a lot of financial advisors are using education around alternatives to retain their best clients and to attract new clients. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see why people would you know want to do that. It would be an opportunity there. Um, you know, you talk about these alternative investments and emerging asset classes. You mentioned farmland. What are some of the other categories? What do you, what do you see as sort of the top emerging asset classes? Uh, right now, the the net flows are going into private credit, 
Um, and that could be direct lending, that could be structured credit. Uh, so uh, the desire that investors have is for a high level of uh, distribution or cash flow. And private credit really is quite um, interesting. I think last year we saw a correction in the real estate funds. Many investors invest in um, REITs and with concerns around interest rates and rising cost, uh, leverage costs. So real estate had a correction. And so that's why we've seen more uh, positive net flows into private credit. In addition to private credit, I would say that private equity, uh, just given some of the correction that we've seen in that marketplace with valuation for private uh, equity coming down, um, we've seen a lot of interest um, uh, people adding to their private equity exposure at the at these new lower valuation levels. Um, I think that just like the demand for U.S. large cap uh, public equity, I think there's a, a natural sort of extension into private equity. In, individual investors have not been able to access private equity from the, the best sponsors. Some of these products make private equity more available um, now than it ever has been before. So it allows individual investors to uh, invest earlier. Um, you know, as we know, public companies uh, are staying private longer. And so a lot of that growth in terms of small and medium businesses is happening when these companies are, are remaining private. So private equity is a way to get individual investors access earlier and be able to participate in some of that wealth creation. I think that's really interesting that you're explaining that because I think a lot of people probably aren't aware of that. Now, when you look at these things, of course, the question that comes to mind is risk. And how do you assess the risk? And I suppose that the very far end of risk is is things that are, you know, venture into the, the fraud section all the way through to things that are, you know, just risky and you know they're risky. How does somebody yes. coming into this who's not an institutional investor, right, who's not someone mm. who, who has all of that, th those tools available to them, how do they look at that? How do they, you know, weigh, weigh in the balance, so to speak? Absolutely. So uh, risk is first and foremost the, the main consideration before you would even allocate to anything alternative. There are trade-offs when you're investing in alternatives. The, the biggest risk that we that we talk about um, is liquidity risk. Mm. So the investment horizon that's appropriate for uh, someone investing in private equity or venture capital, you know, should be a medium to long-term uh, investment horizon. You know, if you need your your capital and to access in the next two years, then you know, being invested in mutual funds or ETF, which would provide liquidity, is more appropriate for what your your goal is. And so, having the right expectation and investment horizon, and understanding that these investments, just like the purchase of a home, you know, it's a long term investment. You're not going to sell your home tomorrow. And if you if you did have to sell that asset tomorrow in a fire sale, you would expect that the price would be much lower. And so these illiquid or less liquid assets, you have to be very thoughtful with respect to the sale of the assets. And so liquidity is just one risk that we think about. Now, with respect to different asset classes, I talked about private credit and private equity being sort of popular where, where a lot of investors are allocating in 2023. But there, the private credit funds, just as an example, many of them are using leverage. 
Uh, many of them are using high degrees of leverage. And so you have to be comfortable with that. And so absolutely talk with your financial advisor about whether or not the risks are something that you know you can get comfortable with because there is a risk return trade-off. The, the goal is higher returns, but with that, there are higher risks. Right. Absolutely. I think as long as people understand what the risks are, and then they can make their own decision, as you're saying, um, how much tolerance they have for risk, you know, with regard to their own personal situation. So I think it's it's interesting that, you know, you're mentioning that, you know, when you look at these different alternative asset classes, and, and there seem to be a growing number, are there any that, in your opinion, stand out as, I don't want to say particularly attractive, but that you feel are becoming more important or more more attractive for for individual investors? Yes, I think given the environment that we've been in the last 12 to 18 months with not just higher interest rates, but but higher inflation, um, I really am interested in uh, at real asset type products, uh, right. things like infrastructure or farmland, partly because they naturally benefit from an inflationary environment. Infrastructure, for example, contractually speaking, they have adjustments built into um, the the contractual agreements so that the investors in infrastructure are going to benefit to the extent that we do see inflationary pressures. And so I like the the hedge in the portfolio that these real assets provide, particularly in an environment where investors may be pulling back from uh, real estate, commercial real estate or residential real estate. Um, I think considering farmland or infrastructure is an interesting complement uh, to the portfolio, definitely for, for a long-term investor. Um, but these are areas that are particularly interesting in an inflationary environment. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because you're talking about real assets, right? And I think that a lot of consumers or you know individual investors, you might say, are nervous about things that, at least from their perspective, don't feel tangible. Do you know what I'm saying? It seems like almost like like you're playing the shell game, so to speak. I mean, that's not a really, yes. you know, obviously that's not a technical term, but you know, people can understand if they're investing in, like you say, infrastructure or farmland or something that actually is there. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that the firms, uh, I personally don't manage an infrastructure fund, but I like the the way they illustrate the portfolio holdings. So you're talking about cell towers or windmills or, you know, a plot of land in Oregon, you know, that a certain sort of almond farm or apple farm. It's just, I think it really does help it. You know, when you, when you think about contrasting infrastructure with private credit, it's hard for the for the mind to imagine. Well, what's in a credit portfolio, you know? And so, I do think that investors, partly because of the experience that we all have, or many of us have, as investors in our own homes, mm-hmm. uh, real estate is something that people can wrap their arms around. There's a sense of understanding, and I think that uh, farmland and infrastructure are are similar because they are tangible, as you say. So, I think that as we, we don't want the word alternative to be a deterrent. Uh, one of my mentors had said, well, what is, you know, what does that really mean? It just means that it's going to, you know, it's, it's something else than U.S. stocks and bonds. And by diversifying the portfolio into a variety of different um, income producing or total return producing assets is going to benefit investors over time. And so that's all we're really talking about here is sort of expanding, you know, 
the diversification set, which hopefully is going to produce uh, better returns for investors with lower risk over time. Right, right. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Now, you also mentioned that investors need to rethink their traditional 60-40 stock bond portfolio, sort of the way it's always been done, kind of an approach. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing there? Yes, I think, you know, there are a few large uh, asset managers that have suggested something more like, you know, using alternatives as substitutes for stocks and bonds. So you take private credit and it could be a replacement for, you know, a bond allocation. Private equity could be a replacement for U.S. Uh, equity allocation. And so what the ultimate uh, optimal asset allocation looks like is going to, you know, differ based on client uh, preferences and risks. But I would suggest that, you um, what we're seeing in the marketplace is it used to be that alternatives would represent less than 5% of a client's portfolio. Uh, but now we're seeing the use of alternatives grow uh, upwards of about 20%. Now, some clients are very um, comfortable with real estate, for example. So they may have, may have a larger allocation to real estate. So I think the use of alternatives you know, there is this bucketing approach. I don't think that's actually how financial advisors think about it. I think what they what they look at is, you know, how much liquidity do you need? You know, do you want all of your assets sitting in daily liquid mutual funds or daily liquid ETFs? Um, or can you, do you have um, the ability to look out and take on um, some of this liquidity risk and diversify the portfolio? So maybe, 15, 20, 25% of the portfolio could be earmarked for these types of um, higher returning alternative assets. And so that's the conversation that I think advisors are having now with clients about what's appropriate, what are people comfortable with, but we're seeing those alternative allocations grow um, tremendously. And so I think that the 60-40 is as a concept, while convenient for kind of thinking about how we um, allocate, is probably out the window. And there isn't a industry model yet that has, you know, has replaced it. But but I'm sure I'm sure Morningstar or other industry folks will will come up with a clever way to kind of capture this the essence of alternatives. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Now, I guess the question that begs to be answered, sorry, the question that begs to be asked is, do you see any tie-in between alternatives and what companies are looking to do to add ESG touch points to their portfolios? I mean, maybe they have nothing to do with each other and there's no crossover and that's fine, but do you see anything happening along there? You know, in the U.S., I think we, we've been slower to embrace ESG or impact investing. I think where we're seeing alternatives and in the, in the U.S., we're seeing more impact funds be developed. And I think there's also some, if you think about infrastructure investing, the approach that's sustainable over a longer period of time is naturally a more ESG driven approach. So in, same is true with farmland. You want to leave the land better than you found it. So there's some uh, alternative where ESG is just fundamentally part of the investment process. I would say from a, a product and marketing perspective, um, because there's sort of mixed views in the US with regard to ESG, um, I, I, there are fewer 
firms promoting ESG or impact in the US. In the UK, where we do some work, you know, 100% of products that uh, come to market, whether they're traditional or alternative, need to have ESG integrated, no questions about it. And then there's also a strong desire in the UK marketplace for things like biodiversity focused products or climate change oriented products. And I think that there, there is, is definitely, uh, there are US investors that are focused on that, but I think it's largely institutional investors uh, funding those initiatives as opposed to demand coming from the retail investor. Right. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, you you make a good point about that Europe is far more along the line on that, right? There's much more development on that than in the U.S. So perhaps we'll see a, a little more growth in that area in the States. I, I think we will. I'm, I'm hopeful uh, if we leave politics out of it, and we just think about the the deny sort of the dynamic of where we're investing to solve some of the world's climate change issues. You know, there's going to be a lot of innovation in that space, regardless of what your view is. And so, if we're investing in new technologies that are going to solve some of those problems, I think that there will be U.S. investor interest in that. There, there's a little bit of fatigue in the U.S. given some of the greenwashing that we saw in ESG mutual funds. I think in some ways there was sort of uh, U.S. asset managers overbuilt for ESG and there was a lot of rebranding. And so now that that's settling in, you know, I, I think the truth there is that we're, we are going to see a lot of interesting investment. And it's a, and that's a climate tech and biodiversity investment is really an area that's exciting. And so I, I don't understand why U.S. investors wouldn't want to take part in that. But that's why I think that the uh, U.S. institutional investors, some of the endowments and pension funds and family offices are actively investing. And I think eventually the individual investor will, will, will want to participate, uh, but it's definitely early here in the U.S., Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. Kim, you've shared so many interesting things with us. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this program would be very interested in being able to connect with you. They probably have a lot of their own questions, things that I haven't thought to ask. Where can people find you? How can people connect with you? Sure. So we're, we're here in Chicago. We'd, we'd love to connect. Our website is xainvestments.com. And please, please reach out. We've got a lot of resources on our website uh, in our knowledge bank that talk about alternatives and ways to access them. So look forward to that dialogue. Wonderful. I'm going to include all of those links in the show notes and certainly in the about section when this is on video platform. And you can certainly find those show notes over on our podcast website at www.seat.fm. So you'll be able to connect directly with Kim and ask what you need to ask and learn more about what she's doing. So Kim, thank you so much for joining us here today on A Seat at the Table. Thank you, Jane. I appreciate it.